The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Yesterday was born in Pennsylvania in 1959, living in Cleveland, Ohio until the age of 10. As a young boy, he was a voracious reader and alongside athletics, intrigued with news and print and television. Following his graduation from the University of Wisconsin with a BA double major in political science and economics, he was recruited onto the John Glenn's presidential campaign and traveled with astronaut John Glenn in what became a prestigious opportunity and life experience. He went on to work in real estate in Chicago, earning further success, later becoming chairman of McCook Metals in 2001. After a challenging period in litigation, he is now pursuing business opportunities with profound visions of growth, both personally and for those he partners with in the corporate community. Michael Lynch, uh, welcome back again to our second program in this series. It's a pleasure to have you today. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today again. We had a wonderful first program that we shared together talking about business and vision and the world going forward. I'd like to um, summarize that and move forward into your journey. I think that we have both discovered and considered technology, considered the platform of corporate social responsibility and uh, care for our uh, environment. In this moving forwards in your own world, how will you be formulating your own business models to encourage this and include it in, in anything going forward? Well, the fundamental change that's taking place, at least with, with the way we think you know, at our business level and, and how I make decisions now, is, is what impact can we have on, on the society from a positive impact and still have a uh, business enterprise that is profitable? Um, we think that today, because of the, the, the fundamental changes in awareness in American society, especially from the environment, between uh, Al Gore and the visibility he brought to the American public and now the BP disaster in the Gulf, that there is a, a, a rapid now desire by the American public and, and probably the consumers and, and beyond you know, the United States for alternatives uh, that can help address the, the, the consequences that we as humans have had an impact on this earth. So the, the, the businesses that we look at acquiring, we look at, at a way that we can use the technology to be profitable but also have an impact. And one such business, for example, is uh, we are um, acquiring and have acquired the technology but do an add-on acquisition for organic fertilizer business that um, will fundamentally change the 
way uh, we Americans and hopefully beyond the United States uh, can have an impact on agriculture in a positive sense. How is it just looking back at a part of our conversation in the last program that we can convert a traditional workforce that was principally involved in manufacturing and industry into a workforce that is led by this new technology that we need to look at. What are the fundamental steps in that conversion? Well, if you go back, and as you, David, are a student of economic history, as Corey's indicated our conversation yesterday, is any time there's a fundamental change in human technology, uh, the, over the long term, new jobs and new industries are created. A clear example of that is the automobile, which profoundly changed the way we humans uh, travel uh, and also created uh, hundreds and thousands of jobs, and it made the United States an economic leader. And that technology was developed or in, and promoted here in the United States and in group. There was, at the time, also an industrialized policy that had direction Along the automobile came, you know, the Eisenhower program to build highways across the nation, and, and that grew to suburbs, and, and it just things just expanded, and the economic growth, the GBQ growth, expounded upon that. And you go back to the advent of electricity, although it was 40 years later before it really had an impact on society, it had tremendous change, and industries came out of of that technology development. I'm positive that not only the things that we're involved in, but others involved in, are going to create new jobs. But there has to be a refocus on training, on education, on taking an individual that is used to using his hands and, and make he or she a, a, a positive person. And it's got to come from a, a joint effort between government and enterprise, between government and business. Do you think that in that that area that we have to look harder at the merits of a globalized village, a globalized uh, workforce that looks at merging yet again cultures in bringing industry together across the world? Yes, and I, I think the, the, the fabric of American society is our immigration. The fact that individuals have come from all over the world to come to America to, to start and become self-made desire to better their lives, and, be, and because of that, and what comes with us also is a sense of insecurity. It's, to me, it's always been interesting that the Americans always step up to the cause, and, and always when it comes to dire circumstances, whether it's World War One or World War Two, where in essence we stepped up and helped save the world from Nazi occupation, and then came back and rebuilt our society and promoted the GI Bill, and create an economic opportunity. It's, it, but it was a joint effort between government and, um, and industry. It was joint. It, we worked together as a society versus what we're seeing, the divisiveness in our society today. My personal opinion is if you really want to jumpstart the American economy, you shouldn't hire all the czars, and I'm not pointing fingers, but you should hire basically a cabinet position where you had a cabinet officer who was head of industrial policy. You have certain elements, whether it's Department of Energy, Department of Commerce, but they should come together and start laying out and help give incentives on where our society is going as far as job creation. Uh, right now, it's just too fragmented. 
it, it seems to me that the war that we have today is more of an environmental war. We, we see these occurrences in the, the Gulf of Mexico, which are quite critical and severe, and I'm sure the aftermath is nothing compared to what we see today. And yet there doesn't seem to be that cohesiveness that you would see during the Second World War, during the Great War. And I always wonder what it is today that is uh, stopping that unity, even that unity that we had at 9-11 in America. It, it seems that there is a reluctance possibly to, to look head-on, to face head-on these environmental problems. I'd agree with that. And to me it's very puzzling because I think as diminishing resources, primarily oil, and emerging economies that compete with the American economy as far as resources, we're going to get more basically stratification and fragmentation and conflict. And if we don't come together to, to lead the world in a new industrial policy with these new technologies that are there, you know, you're going to have continued more strife and more, more issues real around what's happening in the Gulf. Uh, and it's all based around oil, you know, which has been our fuel for our economy for, for sure for the last hundred years. Looking back at McCook Industries, where were the business models then compared to where they are now? Do you see many differences in the period between you know that work that you had there and and how it would be structured today? Yes, I would say that the time that I entered into that industry was looking back now and what I've learned and had I known what I know now, I would have made some decisions differently. And the, the one impact that I had in that industry is I was a very outspoken critic of American industry uh, buying up their competitors, picking up market share, whether it's in steel or aluminum or any other heavy manufacturing industry was making finished product, or raw material product, excuse me, for finished goods. Um, and and acquiring a competitor in the U.S. and shredding it. In other words, when, and shutting it down and moving that production offshore. But looking back now, and looking back at the time that I started buying metals companies, the world was going in the, in the 90s under a, a f profoundly fundamental change. And it was dr driven really because of, of two huge uh, transformations that have had an impact ever since. And that was the uh, Berlin Wall coming down and the now uh, explosion of capitalism in, in Eastern Europe and Russia. And the fact that the Chinese uh, Communist Party now was converting slowly over to a capitalist society. And the... The CEOs of the aluminum industry uh, in the West, the free West, which is in Europe and in North America, primarily Americans and Canadians, there's really no heavy manufacturing of, of uh, aluminum in uh, Mexico, and then the Europeans, um, ranging from the Germans, the Chorus, for example, to Norse Hydro, the Norwegians, to the, the British, was British aluminum. And uh, there was a meeting in, in uh, in the Caribbean, uh, the later was disclosed when we, we sued Alcoa for antitrust as part of the public record. And the CEOs got together and basically came up with a way to consolidate. In other words, agree to agree not to compete with each other, but to consolidate the industry. 
And the Free West basically was now realizing they would have uh, third world competitors, the Chinese and the Russians, but with the capacity now of creating aluminum stuff for war machines, which is what I mean by that is fighter jets typically and airplanes that were bombers and for military effort, now focused on a consumer application and competing with the West. And the, 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 the aluminum smelters and manufacturing plants, because they were unionized primarily, uh, and then other issues at high cost you know, with lack of new technology, was now being threatened financially. So they decided to consolidate the industry uh, privately and um, create an oligarchy. And then um, they would move and acquire uh, aluminum entities in third world countries and, and move the production offshore from high cost uh, production facilities in the US and the UK and, and Northern Europe into third world countries such as Brazil and, and Latin America and into Asia. And I had, I, at the time that I did our first acquisition, McCook Metals, which was a $280 million gross revenue business, employing 1,500 steel workers, unprofitable at the time because Reynolds was not managing it correctly. Um, uh, when I acquired that asset and stepped in to make it profitable, I was stepping in the hornet's nest of a plan that had already been implemented, but because of my vocalness of change that was necessary, because I firmly believe you can manufacture and create product and profitably in the United States if it's done with leadership and appropriate capital and new technology. Is there any way but, to reverse that trend where you can bring a tangible and meaningful workforce back from countries like uh, Taiwan and, and China and India back to the United States? Yes. There, there has to be an effort. The, the tax structure it gives incentives for corporations actually to um, build new manufacturing plants outside the United States. They get an immediate deduction of that. It's called CapEx, Capital Expenditure to build that. There has to be a revision of our tax code. And there can be. And if you create incentives for saving and investment in the United States, you'll have an economic boom that goes back to and parallel after World War II. What does that mean, though, for those traditional acquisitions, those takeovers? Is that policy changed at all now with our economic circumstances, or are acquisitions still carried on uh, as they were you know, 10 or 15 years ago? Depends on the industry. Um, there is um, accelerated activity in pharmaceutical because of what the biotech revolution is doing to their business model. The new forms of therapies that are coming out of the, the, the universities and creating startups. The future Genentechs and Amgems are being created right now on, on campuses like the University of Wisconsin and Stanford University. So there, the, the genius of American inventiveness is still going on, and it's really coming now at the university level with these new uh, develops in technology that, that will be commercialized. And so in, in pharmaceuticals, uh, the larger ones between the Europeans and the Americans are consolidating. And you have bright engineers in China and other parts of the world now also that are uh, stepping up to develop their own technologies. So it is in certain industries consolidating in for uh, because the new uh, technologies are attacking their base core business. So as long as the system allows review, antitrust review, regulatory review, uh, and, and it's uniform, and it's uniform across 
you know, the system, including other parts of the world, which they aren't yet, you're going to have a good enterprise system. How does that make up shape itself when you have this oversight, especially in this country? Does that oversight has to have to be through NGOs in partnership with government? Or how do you think that that plays out to ensure that you do have that complete regulatory body and transparency? I think that the regulatory agencies that oversee, um, and as we develop these trade agreements between WTO and our cooperation agreement with, with antitrust between the EU and the United States and Canada, that you have to make sure that these regulatory bodies are not um, politically mo- uh, influenced. And if, if that takes place, you've got a good system. I saw in my attempt to prevent the alcohol Reynolds merger, that the Europeans are the ones that really stu- stood up and protected Cook Metals and my other businesses, 2,000 jobs of, of individuals I employed to make sure that the free market was um, uh, protected. And they did it with me and, and some of the other companies. And the end result was Reynolds was allowed to merge with alcohol, but two-thirds of the company was broken up and given to other competitive players and created a competitive landscape in aluminum. Um, I'm sad to say that the Department of Justice, despite reviewing all this evidence, was politically influenced um, by a visit by the former chairman of Alcohol, Paul O'Neill, and Richard Pearl, and that they they basically turned their back to us, and that's why we had to go over to the EU to be able to uh, convince them to protect us. And to me, as an American entrepreneur and head of a, a billion-dollar corporation, to go over to plead with the Europeans to save an American company was, to me, very puzzling. Yet, we were the first to do it, and since that time, many American corporations have gone over and forced changes here in the United States to protect their own organizations. So, I would say that the system was pure. It protected me and my companies, uh, and with the joint oversight between the Europeans and the Americans with cross-border mergers, it was, it's a very effective process. The Europeans protected our company. What is it that you take forward in this now, Michael? What is it that you have learnt with this situation, with the, these consequences of what occurred four or five years ago? How is it, what is it that you're going to do differently here? I'm... Um going to be much more prudent on uh, the business decisions we make and how we go about it. Um, uh, I'm going to make decisions and acquisitions that actually change and enhance the business enterprise versus the the conflictory nature that we were involved in. I was uh, very disappointed in uh, the Department of Justice and their lack of protecting uh, me and others. You know, others have had the same situation in aluminum as they turned their back to us and allowed Alcoa to do what they did. So, despite being very vocal in the media and very vocal on American um, rights to protect themselves, we're going to be much more prudent in how we uh, attack these issues in the future. Are you still as strong? and take as as much a leading stance in the American society in, in leading your business to support the American way of life? Notwithstanding all of these events, is that something that you're still very, very geared up to do? 
Very much. You know, there was a time where I sat down with my wife, Kimberly, and when going through something like this, and more importantly, seeing the evidence on how it was done to me and how my own law firm was part of it. And I've never been a conspiracy guy. That was something for the movies and for book writers. And watching and seeing firsthand the evidence presented to me. And then as we litigated the, the depositions and testimony confirming that, um, uh, despite that, what took place, I still believe in the American system. And I still believe that others like myself want to see the system preserve and want to see growth. I'm not disillusioned by it. I'm more realistic and, um, and more determined to make sure the system remains pure. And, and the best form of success is doing the right thing and creating a future business and, and be able to be strong and be able to, again, locally point to uh, bad behavior as a, as a business leader. I won't change. I'm actually even more determined for reasons that have developed me during this process. On a personal level, I'm guessing that forgiveness is the principal position to take here. <laughs> it's um, it, it, it's very difficult for me and going when I went through that process. But it's clear that you know, as, as the Lord has said, it's is his is is his uh, one to correct the, the wrongs, and mine is only to forgive my enemies. That, frankly, David, is the most difficult thing I've ever done is prayer and giving, uh, pray for uh, the sins of my, my enemies and to forgive them for what they've done to me and my employees. That's the hardest thing. And my wife very fundamentally told me and said, you will not become the man that you can become until you forgive your enemies. And I was your classic self-made entrepreneur, very much a warrior. I, I, I grabbed pleasure in that, being strong to give speeches and attack my competitors about their bad behavior. I took pleasure in that, and I, I grew strength from that. And I look back on that, and that was wrong. Uh, today, I take pleasure in helping promote businesses and, and more of a joint effort um, by forgiving my enemies for what they did to me, including my two attorneys at Cypher Shaw, um, who were very close to me. It, it freed me up. Uh, the anger, the hatred, uh, the pain left, and it allows me to become even more productive than I was before, and more of a, a better father, a better husband, and a better uh, businessman. Very free. What is that partnership that you have with your wife that allows a huge support system, uh, both on a personal level and a business level, that is so strong, so powerful, to able to overcome uh, everything? What What is the secret in your case, Michael? I, I would say that uh, she, despite being a very attractive woman, was grounded in, in, in spirituality the first time I met her. Um, Actually, it was stunning as fact her commitment to God. But she didn't wear it on her or on her, sh her shirt sleeves. She just led her life by her commitment to her Lord. Um, I was very much in love when I met her, and uh, I thought more it was physical, but it really was both physical, spiritual. It was a feeling it's hard to describe. And as my friends have seen our marriage develop, they ask, "Why is it so good?" And it's hard work. Um, she understood me which is very rare, and I've, I've explained to others that if you marry a strong entrepreneur, you really need to understand him or her. And she married one of me when I was poor. That meant a lot to me. 
she went through those years of long hours of me coming home late at night from the office or from the plant, uh, having dinner and then going back to the office or the plant. And, um, and but she knew my 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 uh, goals were pure; they were good, and I wanted to be successful. Um, she supported me during those days, including raising three beautiful children, and really brought me to closer to God and to the benefit that that relationship creates for you. So, you know, that that close relationship was there, and in, in what really stunned me and, and brought me even closer was her battle with stage four cancer, where I saw a, a beautiful woman being attacked by a very hideous disease. A woman that was always, you know, she was a triathlete, very athletic, very physically fit, very pro-organic, uh, very green. She was green 20 years before. You know, it's popular now. She was very much in the vegan movement that we see today, you know, 15 years ago. And I was stunned by that and stunned by the, the, the ravageness that cancer does to a woman and how fast it changes her body and, and does it to where she lost her beautiful blonde hair and lived f to fight the cancer for her children and for her husband. That even drew me even closer. The, and then at the same time where my false incarceration, because I was taking on what I was taking on and trying to preserve the jobs here and... and take on the, the corruption, she stood there beside me. And, 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 and I stood with her beside her battle with cancer, and it grew us even closer. And, and I'm a fundamental believer that the strength of marriage comes not through the good times, but through the times of trouble. That really tests the merits of, of the partnership. How about your children? How do you interact with your children and balance? There's a fine balancing act, is there not, between work and, and play. How do you do that in your case, given uh, some fairly hefty stresses that you have on you? I've learned early on in my life that uh, once I became a father, that I was going to separate uh, my family a place in the workplace, in the, the factory, in the office. That I didn't want to be like other fathers that I saw growing up that neglected their children. And then when they came home, they were also uh, emotionally and, and mentally neglecting them. They may be there in physical presence, but, I w but were never there uh, mentally or spiritually. Um, I married later in life, so I, I knew the type of person I wanted to be as a father when I would become a father. And I wanted to make sure the time that I spent with them was 110% quality time. And so as I became more successful, I had the tools to uh, really drive productivity. I, I had my own jet. I had my own driver. And so the, the, those, the, the time of commuting back and forth in a car and working on the phone, once I was delivered to my home, uh, I would get out with my briefcase and my papers and would put them into my home office, and that was it. Uh, people knew about my commitment to my family and would only interrupt me at home if it was an emergency. They respected my commitment, my love for my children, my wife. So uh, I, I, I am happy to say I have three productive, very well-focused children and I have a very good relationship with, all three of them, and individual relationships with them, and I love them dearly. And I hope to continue being an influence in their lives in, in the positive side uh, fashion. I can honestly tell you, though, that for seven years, of my marriage when my twin girls were young, uh, 
and at three, four, five, six age, I neglected him from the standpoint of timing because I was away so much building the businesses that I was building. Um, and so I've made a, a conscious effort to make sure that doesn't that doesn't repeat itself. So um, and I think it's worked out. I see good in them and in the productive children that are becoming now young adults with my twins, you know, recently turning 18. As far as the current situation is concerned, and we are hoping now that you are moving into a new chapter in, in life, will there be parts of that that you will possibly write about, speak about, give people an idea of your journey in, in offering them inspiration of how to succeed through the pain and the suffering that we all do in life? I think um, I have a moral responsibility to do so because um, as I grasped for answers through my own struggles, I looked outwards towards people today in the modern age. In other words, others in their 40s that are going through the battle like mine uh, are going through uh, restructuring in certain areas of their life from the standpoint of both economically and financially and, uh, and in taking on issues of corruption that I have done and have felt the wrath for doing so. And I, there weren't many people I could reach out to outside of a few strong men in my prayer group that would pray for the, the anointed blessing and protection. Uh, in the business world, uh, frankly, I, with some of my relationships, I was uh, shunned. They turned their back towards me because I was too vocal about the negative behavior that's taking place in this state of Illinois. And so uh, I, I, through my relationship with my wife and my family and my strength in God, I basically developed a strength that allowed me to overcome these obstacles. And I believe I have a more responsibility to teach those that in the future are going to go through what I've gone through in some form or manifestation. That yes, if you keep grounded in those values, you keep loving your wife, you keep grounded towards God and family, you can overcome any obstacle you're on earth. I'm a firm believer in that. That's where strength is drawn. Strength is not drawn in materialism. It's not drawn in, in you know, pleasures of, of what our society is, is facing. And I, I think there needs to be more leadership like myself that says, steps up and says, hey, you know, we need, life is not easy. You know, the American materialism that we've experienced the last 30 years has been good, but we've been blessed, and you should use that blessings to help others, and you know, and, and to draw strength from my experience, because you too can overcome whatever you want if you stay focused and grounded on, a, on the right uh, moral constitution. If in the future some of those that possibly did not stay by your side return to you and say, "Look, Michael." Those were difficult days for everybody, and I was in a bad position. Uh, you were in a bad position. We or I made mistakes. Would you consider mentoring me and, and accepting me back into whatever your future is? Would you consider that? That um, uh, you, you're hitting a very sensitive spot, and, and that that's difficult. Um, my president and general counsel, who I was very close to, who, uh, with their partnership with me, they became multimillionaires. One, I went to the same high school, a Jesuit high school here in, Lake, in uh, the North Shore. Um, my general counsel and my president came to me 
And when we were fighting these battles and said, I'm not as, we're not as strong as you, Michael. We can't fight the fight. We're, we're giving up. I was stunned by that. And I told him, I said, this will have a dramatic impact on your life and your reputation if you don't fight to get the truth out. And so the, the, just that concept, David, that you bring up, there's I'm, mental flashbacks of those two individuals in my office that came in that built, helped build the wealth that I created with them and them with me. And they abandoned me. I, I feel abandonment. But I would have to say, given my experience, I would have to forgive them, and I have, and would see if they are willing to change, willing to, to, um, to, to take it the next step and become different people. I have a difficult time, and maybe it's the way I was raised by a, a father who was in the military, that you abandon the post or you abandon the cause or the fight at the time when the battle's the most intense. And, uh, but God tells you to forgive and tells you to open up your arms and, and try to rebuild those relationships. So I would have to make an attempt. To follow up on that remark, I find in my work that there are leaders and there are followers. And I'm always, uh, with my work now, have these horrendous hours in in research and preparation and i always have to go back and and study what it is being a leader and what those sacrifices are uh, do you see looking back do you remember specifically being able to analyze people and see who were leader material and see who the followers were i did and, and I, I found that um, my generation, particularly, because we have lived through an extraordinary amount of influence, uh, as a, not only American generation, but as a generation here on Earth. If you look back to times of uh, when we went through high school in the 70s and in college in the early 80s and into uh, an economy that was been booming to the recent, you know, situation that's taken place with the financial meltdown over the last three years. Extraordinary opportunities for wealth creation and, and standard of living. Um, but we never fought a war. Uh, I never went to Vietnam. I was too young. Um, I didn't go to Iraq. I was too old. Um, I didn't fight in World War II. Uh, so the generation that fought in World War II that came back were, in my opinion, fundamentally different than my generation. My generation has a sense of entitlement, which has created, in my opinion, some issues in our society. And so as I've progressed, I always look for uh, individuals that would run these manufacturing plants that had the same uh, fabric or makeup that myself and my brothers have, the ability to go out and, and lead and, and take on adverse conditions, roll up your sleeves, you know, and help people make uh, the business profitable. Now along comes you know, the ability to take charge, to be demanding, and give people the discipline. You know, if you're not here on time on Monday at 7 o'clock and you do it again, you have to fire that person. Uh, our generation has a tough time doing that. And I think it's because they haven't experienced some of the, the trials and tribulations of the prior generations. And so um, I look for individuals, even today, as we acquire these new businesses and grow them, that have the ability to step up and lead and uh, can think out of the box and take charge of the situation. That helps the organization grow by bringing those type of people into the organization. We are suffering, I think, today 
with those human frailties, whether they're insecurities, fear, insecurity, a whole number of aspects about us. But it seems that they are very highlighted today. Obviously, from England, I'm very well versed with the European Union, and it has become a very much a, an entitlement society, which which seems to be occurring here. And I always wonder how you can reverse that. You know, kids in the European Union have become reliant upon a system which does not give them any energy or incentive. And I guess that that is occurring in the States at the moment. What is it that people of our age and, and you know, you, once you get to this stage, you are armed with some wisdom, can do at our community level, can, can do to change this, do you think? I think there's got to be an awareness. There's got to be um, uh, individuals like myself and you and others that have to speak out and to warn uh, the generation, uh, my generation younger, of the pitfalls of falling into that trap of what happens to a, uh, an economic power like ourselves and then the diminishment of that. Um, if you are a student of history, any great empire, which we are at the peak unless we change the way we do things, uh, that society and the, the individual in that society develops a sense of entitlement and sense of falseness because we're the greatest society on earth is is the society starts to deteriorate in, in lots of areas not only from a moral standpoint but just work ethic and innovation and um and desire to succeed and build upon the successes of your generation to the next if you start losing that you'll go away over the other empires and, and you'll start to see decay and my concern is we're seeing that in certain areas um you know, acceptance of, of our society of, you know, inner city crime and huge rates now of, you know, a fatherless society in the minority communities that are not moving into, you know, other. The fact that, you know, the divorce rate is at a huge level and it, people aren't criticizing, men aren't criticizing other men for abandoning their male responsibilities. These all accumulate to, you know, a decay or eroding of, of, of a strong society. And if there's not a reversal, uh, in my opinion, you'll see the continued erosion of us in a very, very strong country. As a business leader going into the future, as you create these industries once again, do you have plans to be able to focus more on communities, those social networks, being able to analyze the workforce and the families behind them uh, in those people that you employ to make sure that that the work that you provide them is being utilized properly and is being used with wisdom by the workers in any level of your your business and we are looking at corporate social responsibility here but what sort of position are you going to take with that well it's 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 a very good question and it's it's something that my brother and i have been over the last five years uh, facing the challenge and the demographics of the Midwest, where we have the majority currently of our businesses, has changed where you have an, an aging workforce, primarily white, that is being replaced by a younger Hispanic workforce, uh, primarily uneducated. They, they did not come up from the normal uh, progression where they come into the system and, and get a, 
a, a grade school and high school degree and then move into a factory to produce parts for um, enterprise. And what's happened, and, and there's also a, a, a language barrier. You have to speak Spanish to now, if you're going to operate these plants, to be able to communicate effectively with your workforce. Um, so some of the fundamentals that built a society where immigrants came in here and spoke English because that was English, helped build the strength of society. And so we're becoming multicultural in some erosion on the educational process and on the, in the way we communicate. So what we've done is we've taken the workforce that wants to come in, and because of automation, it's no longer as physical a job where you're picking up and lifting or throwing iron ore into a, an open pit to make steel. Um, what you're doing is bringing a person in, primary he or she in their mid-20s, and teaching them how to operate a, a computer interface that runs the machine. It takes a different level of skill sets. And so, but they've had really no formal training on how to operate that, so we have to send them to school, or we have to have our, our plant managers train them and educate them. Now, that being said, our job, you know, with normal minimum wage in the state of Illinois is $8 and a quarter. You know, the, the positions that we slot people are, you know, ranging from 16 to 22 to sometimes $30 an hour. But we take an individual that has a grade school or high school education and have to train them in a skill set that's very specific to the needs that the plant has. With all that said, how do you or how are you planning for the future of your children? Where do you think that they'll be at once they reach university? Do you think they will be facing a different paradigm at that stage in any academia, education, in any area that we probably are not even aware of at the moment? Yes. What, what, what I've done, because my wife and I are both educated and, and we have been the beneficiary of what education brings both on material success and just awareness on abilities and awareness of uh, you can do things and create wealth by being educated. And I'm a big fan of education. We've sent people to school in our plants because of that, that wanted to take it to the next level and better themselves. With my daughters who are 18 um, and my son who will be 11 this November, from day one I have been a big proponent of education and including... Uh, you know, because I had the ability to uh, financially put them in private schools, I've pushed that. I pushed it. I also pushed academics and and uh, and athletics. And I'm blessed to have all three children. They're very, very bright, but also have the desire to learn. It's on Sundays. We've always had, uh, much like when I was a child, uh, quiet time where we'd sit and read together um, and read when they were very young. So they've developed that aptitude of learning because when I went to the University of Wisconsin, which I enjoyed that university, I, I now had the ability to learn because I love to read. I love to, to research. I love to explore and experiment and, and study what other people's done. I'm blessed to say that my children have that now aptitude to do that. I also have pushed them into areas of new technologies. And I also, during my trials and tribulations, uh, I brought them with me on business. I would separate them, and, and one. And when I mean separate the twins, I would bring one on one trip and another one on another trip. They would come visit me in our plants. They would come into a board meetings and would sit in the corner and, and watch the activities. So I exposed them to areas of, of business and commerce and, 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 and learning. 
and they've adapted well to that. My one daughter is um, a very talented woman, and um, she speaks Mandarin Chinese. She's been honored Chinese for six years. She's going to be graduating as a senior, and um, will continue that study. So she speaks that language. She's AP Science and AP Math, and uh, her left and right brain well because she's also an honors art student. So the 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 fundamental push in our family for education and learning um, is is very strong here. And I see other families, whether it's uh, it doesn't matter what your social economic background, if you stress learning and school and discipline of learning and education, you can become successful. I'm a firm believer in that. Our educational system today at the collegiate level is still the best. Now, there's been some slippage. And in my opinion, the public school system in America has got to change. It's got to change fundamentally, or you will continue to lose generations. And we're letting kids slip through that. And um, I think there's got to be a, uh, an effort both at the government and private sector level to start focusing on new technologies to teach kids to learn. And I think those technologies are out there. It's just there's got to be a refocus in America on pushing those monies into that system again to get those kids, primarily in the inner cities and the poor rural areas, the same resources that my children have by going to a, a private school. So I'm a big proponent of education. In the final one minute, Michael, <laughs> uh, given you're on the radio here, what would you like to say to your kids and wife today? in rounding out this second of our two programs? Well, I'm, I'm very, I love them very much. I'm very proud of them, of the people that they've become, uh, that their commitment to the Lord and the fact that despite all the trials and tribulations that they've experienced uh, with their father and with their mother battling stage four cancer, that they've stepped up and supported the family unit and they've become very, very beautiful children and I really look forward to the success that they're going to have in their own lives and the contribution that they're going to make to both the, this society in America but also across the world. I'm excited to see how they're going to become contributing adults as they go forward. Michael Lynch, uh, it's been a great privilege to be talking to you again today. I know that we're going to be uh, talking together very often in the near future. I do wish you all the best. It has been an inspiring conversation, and I hope that uh, you have enjoyed this as much as I have. I have, David, and I feel privileged to be a guest on your show. Thank you very much. And to our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed uh, this life uh, journey uh, that Michael Lynch has provided over these two programs, and I hope that you join us again to follow his, his great journey. If you need information on this and any other program in the series, do visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.